So when Courtney asked me a little over two years ago if I would like to teach at women's Bible study, I was anxious and thought, surely there's someone else more knowledgeable, more eloquent, and more prepared to do this than me. I absolutely enjoyed and loved training in the Word and was on fire studying God's Word, but how could someone like me stand before all of you and teach you something? But I still said yes. And after those initial lessons teaching in Deuteronomy, I felt a calling to do this. I felt that God had asked me to do this, not Courtney. However, I still felt my shortcomings weighing on me. It wasn't actually until last year studying Ephesians, preparing for those lessons and teaching them, that I truly appreciate it that it's not me doing this. I'm not reliant on my knowledge, on my skill set, eloquent speaking skills, or any other qualifications I could list. God called me on his mission, and God is equipping me for that mission. I may seem like an unlikely candidate, especially standing before senior saints who have so much knowledge, wisdom, and testimonies to provide of God's faithfulness in their lives. However, when I have had people such as Helen McDermott and Janet Day telling me that they were encouraged and learned something from my lessons, I know that it was not because of me or my abilities, but only because of God. Today, we're actually going to hear about someone else who probably felt like I did. Someone who said, surely there's someone better than me for God to choose for this mission. Today's lesson in 1 Samuel chapter 16, our theme is that God chooses a king that men would not. God bases his choice on the heart. Back in chapter 13, when God was rebuking King Saul, he included a promise to his people that he would give them a new king, who would be a man after his own heart. And that was in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. In this lesson, we meet the unlikely new king that God has chosen. The story of David, the shepherd boy who became Israel's king, is one of the greatest of the Old Testament stories, and one we probably know well. However, God always has more to teach us from his word. Our first point on the outline is the need to replace Saul as king, found in verses 1 through 3. The chapter opens to see Samuel still mourning over Saul, since God rejected him at the end of chapter 15. Here the Lord lovingly rebukes Samuel, saying, How long are you going to mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? The Lord's verdict stands. And through this difficult question, God is urging Samuel to not be absorbed or dwell on the irreversible. A new start is to be made with a new king. And after God transitions to providing Samuel instruction, he answers his own question for Samuel. God will not let his work end or die with the failure of a man. God's word goes beyond a man or his life. He tells Samuel to go to Bethlehem and anoint one of Jesse's sons as king. The phrasing used here is that he tells Samuel to fill his horn with oil and go. This is reference to the special oil that is used for anointing and an animal horn that is used as a container for liquids. Bethlehem was an unlikely place to find the new king as it was something of a nothing town at that time. However, more importantly for us to notice here is that God states he has provided a king. The Hebrew root word used here means to see. This word is actually used nine times in this chapter. It's used as provide in verses 1 and 17, or see, look at in verses 6, 7, and 18, and as the noun appearance in verses 7 and 12. This emphasis makes us take notice right away that it is by God's will that the choice will be made. This king will be based not on the people's criteria, but on the Lord's. God is the main character in this chapter. He is always in control. Samuel hesitates and shows a bit of fear at the mission that God is sending him on as he's worried about Saul's reaction. 
This response underscores to us that God uses weak people on his mission. God is in control, and with him, weak men can do amazing things, and God gets all the glory. However, when God provides him clear instructions to go, and how to disguise his true purpose without lying, of course, Samuel goes. And this shows us that he is a faithful servant of God's. He did not fully understand how significant this mission is that God was sending him on, but he faithfully submitted and goes to complete the task provided to him. This brings us to our second point on the outline. How did God choose his king? Found in verses 4 through 11. When Samuel arrives in Bethlehem, the local elders are flustered and afraid. But Samuel assures them that he has come in peace, inviting them to get ready to participate in the sacrifice and feast. Consecrate here means the need for ritual purity, including abstinence from sexual activity, avoidance of contact with any dead body, washing one's body, and wearing clean garments. Samuel makes sure that Jesse and his sons comply with these requirements when he invites them to the sacrifice. And here again, we see that God's prophet is weak and in need of the Lord's guidance just as much as you and I are. When Samuel sees Jesse's sons, he has an immediate sinful hunch about whom the Lord has in mind. The text underscores the peril of our impressions. The Lord had told Samuel that he had seen a king among Jesse's sons. And when Samuel sees Eliab, his gut reaction is to get his oil out and anoint him. The Lord must immediately instruct Samuel not to look on what he can see. What man sees does not matter. For man sees to the eyes while the Lord sees the heart. What a crucial moment this is. In 1 Samuel, so much has come down to choices. Israel chose the ark in chapter 4, and disaster followed. Israel chose in their desire a king in chapter 8, and more disaster. And now, the godly Samuel is on God's mission, and we think, surely we can trust God's faithful prophet with this pivotal moment. However, we see here that that is not the case. The kingdom is only safe with God. Just like in chapter 3, when Eli had to direct a young Samuel, God must now correct a mature Samuel. But note how God does this lovingly and teaches Samuel. This both convicts and encourages us. If we are mesmerized, God is not. He can always see clearly. And if we seek God's guidance, he will provide it. This is a very substantial event in Israel's history, and God used this imperfect man to anoint the king after his own heart. Only once God tells Samuel, I have rejected him, Israel is saved from ruin. As Eliab's description here echoes Saul's image, and God is making sure that his covenant people have a leader that is after his heart and will lead his people in his way. And God knows that Eliab does not fit that requirement. Jesse has each one of his sons, excuse me, his sons, present themselves to Samuel one at a time as the tension here builds in our scene because one by one, each one is rejected by the Lord. The Lord has already scrutinized their hearts and rejected each one of them. Samuel tells Jesse explicitly in verse 10 that none of the seven sons that had passed before him were chosen by the Lord. However, since Samuel knows that one of Jesse's sons was chosen to be king, he asks if all his sons are present. Jesse admits that the youngest is not and that he is tending the sheep. 
This is the initial description we receive of the one whom God is providing Israel as their new king, young shepherd. So small was this son in his father's esteem that he is not even invited to the sacrifice and feast that God's prophet called them to. Samuel's matter-of-fact answer back to Jesse here is for him to send and get him, which is made even more powerful when he adds that the sacrificial meal will not begin until the youngest son is here. <clears throat> the scene's climax and wrap-up is the next and last section found in verses 12 through 23. The scene culminates when Jesse presents his youngest son. The first initial describing of David both reflects and contrasts to the first initial describing of Saul, which we, we read in 1 Samuel chapter 9. We were told Saul was from a family with money. There was not a man more handsome than he, nor taller than he. Here we read that David was reddish, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. We also already learned he was the youngest of the family and tends to the sheep. So both are described as handsome. However, Saul's appearance is described more like the other nation's kings, like a big, tough warrior guy. And David is described as just another nice guy. Yet the Lord says this is the one. God kept his promise, and he did as he said in verse 1 and back in chapter 13. He provided his people a new king. It is interesting to note that the adjective used to describe David here, ruddy, means a reddish-brown, which could be describing his hair or his skin, but one commentator noted that this adjective is used to describe two of the most heroic men in the Old Testament. Esau and David are both described as naturally red, showing they were born to be heroes. What a scene. Let's review. Jesse didn't even bring along his youngest and figured he could stay with the sheep. After each of Jesse's seven sons parades before Samuel and every single one is rejected over and over and over again, Samuel asks Jesse if he has any more sons. He probably was feeling confused and worried at that moment as God stated the king he selected would be found here. Jesse states he has one more son that he didn't bring, the youngest. They must send someone to get him, and after the shepherd comes in, sunburned, probably smelling like sheep, what must Samuel and Jesse and his brothers have been thinking? However, as soon as he walks in, God says to Samuel, this is the one. The youngest son is so obscure, we aren't even told his name until verse 13. We see God's refreshing way of trampling on worldly views and human standards once again. God chooses the most unlikely to do his will. God chooses a king here that men would not. Because God bases his choice on the heart, not on appearances or reputation, stature or charisma, power or wealth, but only on the heart. As one commentator stated, it honors God when we revel in his surprises. Next, we see that Samuel empties his horn of oil and anoints David. We also read he is theocratically anointed by the Holy Spirit. The outward rite of anointing is accompanied by the inward reality of empowerment by the Spirit. And at last, the name of David is used here. God both chose David to be king and equips him for the task. God calls his servants to a specific mission or ministry and at the same time gives them what they need to fulfill the mission. He gives us what we don't have the capacity to do in our own strength and skills. 
Again, we see similarities and differences <clears throat> between Saul and David. The spirit rushing upon Samuel is like what happened to Saul in chapter 10, verses 6 and 10. However, this time for David, the spirit has a permanent enabling to fulfill his responsibilities as covenant king. Similarly, we have an indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us as he takes a permanent residence in the body of believers of Jesus Christ. And he enables us to continue Jesus's work. Romans chapter 8, verse 8 through 9 states, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And we studied last year in Ephesians, it states in chapter 1, verse 13 to 14, Paul says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. <clears throat> Sorry. Here we move settings to focus on Saul in a passage that is theatrical but serves an important purpose. We see these two characters, Saul and David, once again foiled. And as we move past this week's reading, we will see this stark contrast between these two continue to build. Here it's as if we cross a literal divide from reading verse 13 to verse 14. We, re we read here, the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, a logical counterpart to David's empowerment. The spirit had twice come upon Saul in chapters 10 and 11. But the Lord now judicially sends an evil spirit which tormented Saul. This is more than just pangs of an uneasy conscience because the Lord had rejected him. As one commentator put it, God permits a demonic spirit to attack Saul so that he is periodically drawn into a vortex of depression and plagued by irrational anxieties and jealous fear. As a righteous act of judgment on Saul's persistent rebellion of which he never truly repented, God permitted an evil spirit to come upon him and facilitate his decline and ruin. Saul's servants here recognize the external spiritual origin of his trouble and bravely raise their concerns to him. Saul agrees to their proposal of having someone who can play soothing music come in to help Saul feel better. Essentially, Saul's servants recommend him to find what we refer to now as a worship leader, a man or woman who can, using music, bring the love, peace, and power of God and here to Saul. Saul actually needed to be led in worship, so it was essential for him to find a man who could do the job. God gave us music and gave it the abilities to touch people with great power. Music can be used for great good or great evil as it can so powerfully communicate to our inner being. Oh, the irony here in verses 17 and 18. The rejected king unknowingly seeks to obtain relief from the newly anointed king. This was the Lord's plan, of course. As David entered Saul's services as his court musician, the young boy may not have understood why this was happening, but David could be sure that this order had arrived for a reason, since God's gracious purposes always guide the events of his people's lives. The irony is intensified as the same Hebrew root word used in verse 7 is used in both verses 17 and 18. Just as God stated that he had provided for himself a king among Jesse's sons, 
Saul requests his servants to provide for him an expert on the lyre, which is a stringed musical instrument like a small U-shaped harp. Becky actually shared in our training session that many shepherds in this time would use musical instruments to soothe the sheep. Additionally, I found it interesting one commentator stated that the dominance of shepherds in the Bible may partially account for the prevalence of musical instruments used in the Hebrew Bible. As shepherds used instruments to calm their flock, scare off predators, and even communicate with other shepherds. David is described here with a glowing reputation by Saul's servant, but the most important attribute applied to him is that the Lord is with him. And as we read on, we see the servant's recommendation of David is confirmed, for Saul is taken with him. It is even stated here that Saul loved him greatly. The writer here, empowered by the Holy Spirit, placing verses 1 through 13 and then verses 14 through 23 back to back is so powerful. It's as if he was saying, look at that. David is not only God's choice, but Saul's choice too. It is the chosen king who keeps the rejected king from falling apart. Consequently, the king makes him a member of his royal staff as his armor bearer. This was a very important position as a soldier's life often depended on the courage and faithfulness of his armor bearer. And Saul knew David was worthy of this position. There would be others with the same rank, enabling David to become acquainted with the life of the court, the demands made on a ruler, and the king himself. There are so many ways in this chapter we see David the shepherd boy pointing us to Jesus Christ that it's hard not to notice. There are the physical ways such as they both were born in Bethlehem and described as coming from lowly beginnings. More importantly, David is a king after God's own heart that God chose to lead his people in his ways. And Jesus has God's heart chosen by God to deliver his people from their sins and death. As stated in John chapter 5, verse 19, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. David starts as the youngest son out tending the sheep, and Second Samuel ties David's kingship to his shepherd beginnings. You shall shepherd my people Israel, and you shall be ruler of Israel, found in chapter 5. I took you from the pasture, from, from following the flock, to be ruler of my people Israel, chapter 7, verse 8. Jesus compares himself to a shepherd in the Gospel of John, chapter 10. He states, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. There will be one flock, one shepherd. David is theocratically anointed by the Holy Spirit in this chapter, empowered to complete his mission he is called to by God. In Luke chapter 3, Jesus experiences the last great anointing in the river of Jordan. When Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Both were chosen by God to be king and were unlikely choices in men's eyes. David didn't look like a king that the people wanted. Didn't look like kings the other nations had. Jesus also did not look like the Messiah. He didn't come like a king. He wasn't from royal upbringing or how the people imagined he would come. God elected them because God sees the heart. 
One commentator stated that nowhere is the divergence between divine and human perception more clearly evidenced than in the assessment of the figure of the Messiah. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That's from Isaiah chapter, or, chapter 53, verse 4. But the divine accolade was proclaimed as this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. Jesus was persecuted, betrayed, denied, beaten, mocked, spit on, and ultimately suffered crucifixion because men did not believe that he was the Messiah. But Jesus did not come to establish his rule using military power or royal lineage, but by giving his life as an atoning sacrifice for the sin of the world. He came to rule through love. While Christians today have become used to thinking of Christ as the second part of Jesus' name, it originally functioned as a title, meaning anointed one. Just like David was anointed by Samuel to signify his divine appointment to ruler over the Israelites, Jesus was appointed as our Christ, our Savior, the ascendant king of our hearts. Verse 7 states, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. This is truly the key verse of this chapter and perhaps even all of 1 Samuel. This is also an Old Testament version of John chapter 2, verse 23 to 25, which states, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. 1 Samuel 16 left me praising the humble and gracious King and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus took on flesh and humanity, carried our sins, suffered for us, oh, sorry, and is now exalted as the risen and reigning King of all, the King whose kingdom can never be taken away from him, nor does he ever stray from God's heart, always leading God's people in his way. <laughs>